everybody needs, I think, a mentor and someone who can help them. Having a great board around you, they, they, they will always tell me you can't see the whip from the trees maybe in the situation. So having them around is really helpful. Um, I, I don't know how I would have been able to do it without that, to be fair. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Success is in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection, and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. Just a note before we get into the podcast, Jamie Dardin from Spain, sitting out in the back garden. So if there is any background noise, any waves, any birds, that's why. On today's episode, we've serial entrepreneur and investor Jamie True. Jamie, who started in business aged 17, grew his first business to some 6 million in revenue before he was even 20, and has since founded multiple businesses, all with a multi-million pound price tag. Not one to shy away from putting his own skin in the game, Jamie is also a serial investor and continues to found and drive innovative businesses forwards. Recently, Jamie founded Uptime, an app that enables users to listen, watch, or read five-minute knowledge hacks from the world's best books, courses, and documentaries. Raising some $16 million to launch Uptime and driven by AI, could this be the next big thing in edtech? I asked Jamie what it takes to found a business, scale and sell in less than five years, and how he knows how to put it on red and not on black. With a pool of insight and inspiration, ladies and gentlemen, Jamie True. Thank you, Ollie. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today. So, I mean, Uptime obviously isn't your first rodeo in, in terms of business. Looking back at when you were, you know, 17 years old, you started a business called Power Organization, and over time you turned over six million quid with that before you, you kind of jumped ship. Now, you know, why have you gone into this world of entrepreneurialism so young? Um, it's a great question, Ollie. And um, I think I would say that it must be in my blood because my family both from both sides were into business and always being entrepreneurs in what they did. But I'd say that interestingly, this kind of situation causes that too. Um, I, I, my parents got divorced and I felt that I really needed to start earning money to take care of myself and maybe my family at some point. So it came from necessity actually at that point for me. So, so the idea, where did that idea back in the day when you were 17 years old come from? Because a lot of people are just, well, now working out what to do on Call of Duty, I suppose, back then in whenever it was, 97 was ever so slightly different. But um, where did that idea come from? Um, well, to be fair, I, I was struggling. Uh, I didn't go to uni and I was struggling to get my first job. Um, and um, I worked in a fashion company because my mum was in fashion. Right. And um, basically, it wasn't going very well for me because not only was I, I'm not really good at ladies fashion, I'm colorblind as well. So <laughs> <laughs> that's not ideal. <laughs> not ideal. And I noticed when I was trying to like get some work experience, but some some kind of very cool guys kept walking into the office and they seemed like they were traders. And uh, I asked the, the, the um, managing director at the time, you know, what do these guys do? And he's like, don't do that. That's the bottom end of the industry where they buy and sell like redundant stuff. 
And I said, no, I'd, li I'd like a shot at that. And um, I kind of uh, started working, doing a bit of trading and found that I actually was quite good at it. And that's how it all kind of started. Because in 99, you had Interclub Net, right? And you were turning over 8 million quid, 3 million net profit in the first year or or profit fundamentally in the first year. You actually look at that. Those are better numbers than Mark Zuckerberg's doing when he first started. Yeah, it was remarkable. <laughs> You're telling me. Yeah, no, no, it was really interesting. I, I, I wanted to be a footballer at one point right. and uh, didn't quite cut the grade uh, physically. Having a pizza with a friend, it was like, let's start a business. And he was trading computers. And uh, he said, let's find a, a B2B trading platform to 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 start a business and why don't we do computers and i was like well can we do something more exciting and he was like what do you want to trade i was like football players he's like you can't trade humans it's impossible i was like well why not so we just ended up like with this business plan and took it to the football association and met, uh, tried to get to glenn hoddle actually who was unavailable at the time and the next thing you know you know um we met the right contact and then started growing a tech business trading players from club to club and that's why it was called interclub and um it was quite a big big thing actually in those days to to create a, a platform for football players um it was before football manager games for sure well i was going to say because it's fantasy football league and all that lot isn't there whereby actually you are building your own team but talk to me about how you you're trading physical people or you're just trading their credentials and you're buying and selling them to other people how does it actually work or how did it work yeah i mean the, the general idea um was basically a great database of every kind of stat or every football player in the world which we bought actually off a fantasy football company to start with to actually start and, and grow that and that was the the genesis of the idea and then a communication system where we had Learner and Houseby, which was the biggest language translation company at the time, who enabled in, into, uh, I'd say like an inter, inter um, communication system, which was language translation on the fly so that the clubs could you know, actually communicate properly because it was a global uh, system. And then what we did is we created a wanted list and a transfer list so you could blind other clubs. So effectively clubs could place players to other clubs. And then what was interesting is you'd have clubs like um arsenal were like we want to sell our our floodlights from our um not from our main stadium from from basically the training stadiums could you can we trade that as well so we suddenly getting needs started coming out of trading other things from clubs which they didn't want to other clubs and and then that just became uh, a system where they would pay a, a two thousand pounds a month subscription for it and they really liked it so that's how it all started that's amazing and i suppose I suppose looking at it, you then merged into what you've classed as Z Group PLC, right? That was what happened. Interclub merged um, in, into that, and then you you essentially floated. Is that right? No, uh, Interclub floated itself. Interclub floated itself. Oh, okay. Yeah, we we did a float for thirty million. Um, we we got to a position where we had about eight million pounds worth of revenue from clubs committed. Um, had about one hundred and twenty people working for the company, um, and it floated for about thirty million on the on the AIM market, which was quite buoyant at the time kind of not such a buoyant market at the moment and um, quite a liquid but mm -hmm. it was uh we had some great investors the guy who backed um quick fit euro uh -huh. called bob morton who was quite a prolific investor in the time but the first big check into that business to help us scale right um and then uh what was really exciting um is that the fa got very excited about the system at some point and then bought it mm -hmm. um they, they signed a long-term contract for grassroots football and and saw this technology as, as a platform for grassroots. So they ended up uh, making an offer to buy the company. Um, I think that was back in 2000. So it was you know quite quite a long time ago. But, but that was uh, a great great experience, really. How old were you at this point? I must have been 23 or 24. 23, 24. You floated for 30 million quid. How did you know how to structure a business, right? Because that's one of the hardest things when starting a business, let alone actually finding the cash to grow it. But putting the right people in place to grow to grow that business? Well, I think I, I did it all wrong. 
Um, so, <laughs> I'm glad someone has. Uh, and this, um, uh, it was my first first attempt, and we had an accountant um, who was one of the four kind of founders who came on, and and he didn't issue the shares properly. He um, was a bit tricky, um, and we kind of trusted him uh, to do everything and to recruit, and it ended up being a bit of a nightmare. So it was one of those experiences where um, I ended up floating a company, and it all looked great and rosy, but. Behind the scenes, it was an, a mess. And um, was it a costly mistake? It was a costly mistake because it came from greed from the other party, and it caused, you know, for a young person when you're 23 or 24, by not doing things properly, it caused uh, almost a bit of litigation, almost to to kind of rectify the the issue, which was quite scary, um, especially when you don't have funds at that age. And um, so I, I didn't really enjoy that experience. I'm glad you went through that at 24 because I went through exactly the same thing when I was 24 with regards to a buyout as well in terms of the shares being incorrectly allotted. And actually, it does cause you, well, I've lost a lot of hair as you can clearly see on the Zoom link, but uh, that was mainly all through that litigate that I went through. But it's not ideal, but you have to make these mistakes to know where you're going and how to actually rectify them moving forward and not do them again fundamentally. I think so. I definitely think so. But also what's interesting is I think that that was a big turning point into, okay, I want to do this again Mm -hmm. and float a company because that's a really great thing to do, but not have any of these kind of uh, nasty kind of things that could happen. So it kind of pushed me and like lit a fire to, okay, I want to do this again, but be the CEO Mm -hmm. and not be you know, in a situation where I could be you know, squeezed out or someone could could like ruin something good. So when you're going into investments, what are you specifically looking for? Because not only are you a serial entrepreneur in terms of founding and starting up businesses and exiting, but you invest in multiple businesses, one of which is a cookie company, Delicious, which I think is fantastic. Now, what do you look for when going into into businesses like that? It's funny because um, I was trying to distill what is that essence. And I talked to a lot of people who are very successful entrepreneurs. I asked like Lord Alliance, who's a great entrepreneur. He just uh, sold similar web and um, and floated that for billions and he's done many big exits and I, I tend to talk to people about their kind of paradigms and what's important to them and for me it's like really believing that the person um, who I'm investing in uh, when things will not go exactly to plan have the ability to pivot and that really good energy to be able to move things forward and um, be okay with that so it's the it's it's the ability to change and um, not be stuck. And I find that an intellectual trait and being too intellectual about things can, can sometimes um, work against people when they want to stick to a way. So I, I definitely look for uh, really talented, excited people who uh, feel that they can change and grow with change. And also you just get a feeling um, if somebody really has a sensible idea or not, because I know it sounds really strange, but does it make sense? I do see a lot of business plans. It's like, actually, this does not quite make sense, but everyone's really excited about it. I'm like, I don't understand why. <laughs> so give me an example of a business that, that hasn't made sense then to you that you haven't gone into. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I, I've invested recently in, in, a, in a blockchain company. I don't want to go into any names, but the concept of the reason and the real purpose for someone to actually buy the product and part with money was slightly off for me. And I didn't quite understand exactly why is that so much better than what was being done before. And sometimes people set up businesses and say, well, it's exactly like that, but it's the same sustainable business. So it's like, you know, the way we order our, you know, our goods, it's from a sustainable source. And I'm like, that's great. And I think that's really great to do, but it's not a reason why it's going to be better necessarily than 
uh, what's out there. So I think that those are things that don't really make sense. And like, I, I really think that someone comes into doing something, there's got to be a, a reason why it's better than what's out there, which taking the game forward. It can't be just, you know, because of like a little tick box of this is a mode or a fashion and I'm just going to do it. So I find there's a lot of um, opportunities around like that. And um, I steer clear of those kind of opportunities. And in terms of, you know, from an entrepreneurial point of view, an investment point of view, most entrepreneurs start a business, they exit a business, maybe they then won't do much more, they might invest in other businesses, but you've kind of gone through the investment process, you've started a load of other businesses, you've got so much going on, how the hell do you actually manage your time? Yeah, um, well, I, I feel like I have a lot of time. Um, because I have always the main thing which I'm working on, which is currently uptime, which is a new app. And um, that really takes a priority. And when it comes to managing um, investments and I'm investing, you know, I may have board seats and, and you know, relationships with those founders um, or directorships. But I find that actually I have more time now than I've ever had. And I guess it's it's more down to de- decision making and what you want to get involved in and where do you where do you get involved and at what point. So I think I've just probably got a little bit better of uh, at just not trying to get involved in too many things, letting go um, and trying to you know, be important at certain points where I'm needed rather than not needed. You know, looking back at your parents that you say were entrepreneurs as well, your mother was an entrepreneur. Did she have the same flair in terms of investing in businesses, starting multiple businesses, or did she just work within one over her career? Yeah, she she pretty much worked in one over her career. She was in the fashion industry. So she she started in buying and then went into manufacturing. And um, she, she did a great job. Um, and she's very strong. Um, you know, building companies from an energetic point of view, but it's a very different world to tech. So it's a very different skill set. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say we're very similar in that way. She's very creative as well. Because tech is very much, as you say, very much your world. Arguably, I suppose, when your mother was was in business, maybe there wasn't quite as much technology around. But in 2010, you were kind of famed, I suppose, for for building a team and winning the most innovative mobile agency for Grapple. Okay, and then you sold it for, or at least it was acquired for 39 million quid. It went on to become much, much more than that. But how did you actually go about starting that team and building that business? Um, it was a very exciting opportunity and a really great um, kind of example of pivoting um, because we, you know, I found that I was looking for a technology uh, in the mobile space, in the mobile app space. Um, I, I basically saw a, a company in Israel which claimed that you could, with one piece of code, uh, which is HTML, basically once you, you, you build an app in HTML, it would then automatically port it into every single programming language from BlackBerry to Java to iPhone. And I was like, wow, that sounds incredible. But when they, they were looking for investment and um, when I got under the hood and actually started looking at what they built and I, I got um, a great guy who was uh, a technical lead to, to look at the tech, it didn't actually do that. Um, and it was more concept. So <clears throat> I was, it was quite disappointing. And then um, I started searching on the web and found a company in Canada that actually said they did the same thing and actually did build the tech, but they didn't have any commercial whereabouts to actually deliver on that. So um, I managed to do a deal with the Canadian VC to buy the tech, which they invested 10 million on and didn't actually uh, have a commercial model. I kept them as a shareholder as well and a carry in the business. And I promised that I would put more money in and I would actually deliver on their promise. Um, and the business plan really was to take this tech and go to agencies like you know McCann Erickson and Omnicom and say, look, here's a bit of tech. You've got a lot of clients who want to build apps. Um, you can build them on here and charge a monthly fee. And that was the idea. Um, 
And then I realized that agencies don't pay monthly fees and they didn't want a piece of tech. They were like, build it yourself and help us. And we want to be a production. We need production. We don't want to pay license fees. So that was like a, a, the first kind of like, ouch, um, the business plan is not going to go to plan um, situation. <laughs> and then you, you built it out over time though, right? And you actually did then make it into a success and it did start to grow. Now, I suppose that was an element, as you say, of pivoting, but arguably... You know, were you were you not laughed out of the room? That's the wrong thing. But what did the shareholders say when your business plan just didn't cut the mustard and you didn't have the execution that you'd forecast? Well, I think what we did is we you know we went back to shareholders and say, look, you know, the people we're going to, like, we went to Microsoft uh, agency at the time and said, look, we want to build an app for you, and they were like, why don't you build it for us instead of us paying two thousand a month? Why don't we just give you two hundred thousand pounds? That's our our budget, and you go build it. So we're like, well, that's not kind of what we want. We just want SaaS income. But we we went back to our shareholders and said, look, everyone's saying the same thing. Don't have the 2,000. They, they want to give us 200. So what, what would you do? Um, and they said, look, you know, do it. So um, we started hiring to build on the platform that we actually uh, acquired. We then found out really quickly that production is quite a headache. It's a never-ending feast of changes and change requests, which never actually make you any money and actually really drag projects on. And uh, it's very labor intensive. So we found that that to be very difficult. So we grew the business pretty much as a production house. And then there was a moment where it got painful. And our, our chairman, a guy called John Clayden, uh, who I owe a lot of credit to, who's like a mentor to me, said, you know, actually, why don't we, you know, these people want an app. They need people. We know where the people, why don't we just give them the people and the platform and they can rent it from us. So we're kind of like a managed service business. Then you wouldn't have any of these problems. Um, and then you can actually really grow that. And it was like, okay, let's try that then. So it did take time, um, like three and a half years to four years to to find that bit of gold. And you mentioned about John being like a mentor to you. How, you know, having a board or having any Ds or having mentors fundamentally around you when you're starting in business, or even frankly, once you've been in business for a long time, how important is that to, to making the right decision? I think it's hugely important. Everybody needs, I think, a mentor and someone who can help them. What's incredible is it not, it's not just happened once or twice uh, with John, but having a great board around you, they, they, they will always tell me you can't see the whip from the trees maybe in the situation. So having them around is really helpful. Um, I, I don't know how I would have been able to do it without that, to be fair. Our sponsors, Coronation Wealth Management, provide a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. Here's what an entrepreneur and the founder of a health and fitness app says about working with Coronation Wealth. The team at Coronation have had no end in helping me formulate my business, understand the risks, and things to think about. They're now looking after my family and their financial objectives. Coronation Wealth Management LLP is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority for the purpose of advising solely on the group's wealth management products and services. More details of which are set out on the group's website www.sjp.co.uk forward slash products. Looking at when you kind of scaled your businesses over the over the last couple of years before you got into the world of uptime, which is your your latest actual venture, the latest company that you founded, you had Work Angel, which was a massive business in terms of revenue and scale, and indeed exit. Talk to me about about that because that was after you built the whole Grapple team and then exited that one as well. Yeah, it was called LifeWorks. We, it started as Work Angel, and we changed its name to LifeWorks um, because we it was more suited for the US market. It was it was something which I really loved and passion. Um, I had a passion for, which was you know 
how can you do a business at this stage which you know can do well but really can do good and it was one of those rare opportunities where you could really do both in a big way um and it was corporate wellness so really we created a platform which um was really it was kind of like uh, uber for therapists effectively for the corporate world but we then tagged onto it a whole tech platform so um we had you know rewards perks a comms platform so kind of think about you know facebook for your office which had psychology help and it had um you know all the perks you could buy and discounts on all your shopping and um and it also had recognition so you know we we, we found out really quickly that there was a a real pain point in in the employee world where most people in a job would leave their company for four main reasons and we just tried to address the pain and the pain was like most 75 percent of people leave their job because they don't feel recognized um, a big percentage of people feel that they're not remunerated properly or they have a work-life balance issue or especially in large corporations but they didn't feel part of a community so we built a social network platform for companies that did rewards and perks that had recognition and had mental wellness support which was building a network of 20,000 counselors globally who could literally when any employee said like, i've got an issue with say elder care or anxiety or depression they could hit the app and they'd have a counselor with them uh helping within 10 minutes and that grew really quickly uh, we, we grew to nearly a thousand people in, in four and a half years. And in terms of raising money, you and, and going into where you are now in August 2019, you started the business called Uptime. And, you know, you started it at exactly the right time because it was just before the pandemic. People had a lot of time on their hands during the pandemic to go online and learn and educate themselves. And mental health was a huge thing as well during during the last or, you know, over the last 12 or 18 months. But you also raised $16 million to start the business. And I'm assuming that's going back to your 18-month runway. What was the methodology and reasoning behind raising the money privately and not you putting your own money into it? So, so just to be clear, I did put, I was a big part of that. So um, I think that my methodology of um, raising money is that um, I always underwrite the funding round with my own money. So then it doesn't become, and I think this is a great tip, because especially at very early days, but if you're starting a business and someone says, you know, I want to raise money at 3 million or 4 million value or 5 million or whatever the value is, and you go to an investor, you're always going to be under attack for the valuation. There is no way that, you know, at that point, what is the valuation of an idea on a piece of paper? So um, by, by actually underwriting it and being the first investor on top of your own shares that you've got for free and, and investing at that point is a very strong way of saying that's the price and you can join. And I think it, it, it's, it stops a lot of needless kind of back and forth around valuation, which you get. Um, so underwriting is good. It doesn't, you don't have to do the whole round. and You may not have the amount of money. It's not about that. It's really about the fact that you're putting skin in the game. Regardless of the sum. So if you're starting out putting a couple hundred quid or a couple of thousand quid or tens of thousand quid, doesn't matter what it is, as long as you put something in there. Yeah, I think it's really positive because you could say, look, I, I'm underwriting it and this is how much I'm putting in. And it's a big percentage of my worth. It doesn't need to be. It's all percentages rather than amounts. I think at that point it shows real dedication. So that's kind of what I did with Uptime as well. So I put a significant amount of money, and so did um, the other partners as well at the early stage to back the idea. So talk to me about the the business as a whole then, and the structure and the idea, because the idea is fascinating. It's running off AI, and it's actually educational pieces of content that are consolidated into sort of five minute snippets, be that visual or audio or text, for instance. But you know, you, you guys have been on some serious, you know, sort of trajectory with regards to Apple apps. You've been on the ones to watch. You've been the app of the day. You know, you guys are absolutely smashing it. But what's the concept around it? And why did you start it in 2019? 
great. I mean, I always, always link to what's the problem you're trying to solve um, at the beginning. And what we found really is people have limited time nowadays, information overload, limited resources, which are quite expensive and books and courses are rarely finished, yes. um, limited attention spans. And it's really hard to upskill oneself and stay relevant. So we looked at that and thought, how, how, do we, how do we get into that space and provide something which is really of value? We, we came up with the term knowledge hacking because everybody's like, everyone's biohacking right now and everyone's going to the gym, everyone's doing things to look good. Uh, but what are you doing for your brain? And how can we, how can we uh, coin a phrase knowledge hacking? So we, we thought by taking the world's leading books, courses and document, documentaries and creating a format which would be like a fun tappable five minute format, which is kind of the Instagram-ish format, would be a really clever way of doing it. And it's the, the research was really astounding because we found that um, people remember kind of 10% of what they read they 20% uh, of what they hear and 30% of what they see. But when the information is kind of presented in a format that combines all three of them, um, the retention rate is over 50% and people are more likely to remember and, and learn. So we took that kind of concept. And then what we did is we, we created a format um, and a technology that took a book and could actually hack it using tech and humans in a very scalable way. So it's like, Okay, here's, here's the next course from Anthony Robbins. Have it in five minutes. Well, we were chatting about this this morning. Before before we came on the podcast, I had some colleagues um, that we were just chatting it through with. And the, the way that you have consolidated all of these books and all of these documentaries and whatever it might be, and you've pulled out interesting elements of it, the tech must be massive behind that. It must be hugely powerful. And we were trying to work out how, because everything's animated, everything's voice optimized, everything's visual. But you've done that on thousands and thousands of different pieces of content. Yeah, and that was really the skill. So creating ML and AI technology that could take a manuscript or a book um, with references and be able to take a 150,000 word, say, course or book or documentary, and then the machine can bring that into 10,000 words, which is highly relevant. What is the best quote? What are the three most important things here? And what should the, the editor who gets this piece of work after it gets shrunk down to 10,000 words really focus on? So we focused on building that technology. Uh, it was proprietary. So we've now got a process there. If you said, you know, here's a great book, can you hack it for us? Or a documentary on Netflix, can you hack it for us? Um, or a LinkedIn learning you know, course, how long would it take? And we've got it down to three hours now. So could we do it on this podcast then? Could we go, what's the most interesting part of this podcast? Put it through your platform and it goes the beginning, the middle, and it just chooses five minutes of it. It's funny you said that. Um, but the next thing we're adding because we, we do books courses and documentaries um in q1 we're, we're adding podcasts so we're going to be looking at what are the best podcasts out there which maybe you haven't got a, an hour of time to listen to but you just want to hear the three key points and summaries um so we'll, we'll be adding that um as a feature um next year so that's something which we're, we're, we're doing is this one of your most exciting projects then from the last say let's say two decades of your career this one is incredibly future-proof and the way the world is is going and i assume you said that with every single business you started back in the day but it does seem like you're pretty much on the money with this one and um, yeah i'll always say it every time and i think maybe it's just it's like this is the big one <laughs> um so <laughs> so i i will I, I keep saying the same thing but i have said that multiple times yes. so as long as i'm on an upward trajectory and the trend is your friend i'm happy so yeah i i, I feel really excited because again it's an, an, a lovely opportunity as well to do well and to do good everyone wins here it's one of those kind of, you know, all boats rise with this kind of business where win-win. Uh, 
Yeah. And in terms of collaboratively working with Apple and with Google, Apple are famous for hiding a lot of their algorithms and, and not really telling people many things at all. Now, obviously, with podcasts, you have to sort of work it out and try and understand how to get at the top of the leaderboard. Now, you guys came out as app of the day. How did you do that? Was that just by, you know, having a relationship with them? Or was that genuinely because you had huge amounts of download? I, I don't think there's a, a, a way I can really say that this is a guaranteed way of doing that. I think there are trying to, um, I don't think you can start a business thinking that's how it's going to work um, with Apple, because I think it's topical. I think we're in the right space, which is learning and edtech. So I think that's the right, you know, we're in the right sector. Because I think if we bought an app right now for saying business cards, you know, or something into digital, I don't think they would want to feature it, right? So I think you've got to be on mode. So I think a part of it is being at the right space at the right time in something that they're really pushing. So I think education is an, a strong area of growth for them. So that was helpful. Um, I think they really liked the fact that when we built the app, very early days, we contacted them and said, look, we're building this. Can we have some feedback? Can we share with you screens? Can, and, and getting them involved at an early stage was really important. Um, and I think that shows that you want to collaborate and understand the features that are coming out on Apple and doing uh, and Google and, um, and working with them. So that helps. And then also it's like communication. It's like staying in touch and saying, these are new features. This is what's happening. And, and trying to you know, grow a relationship um so you know it's, it's fantastic they're, they're really 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 good i think the way they treat their developers um and try it with the app store is, is good i mean they really um encourage features they encourage their feedback they know stats and they really share a lot of great kind of knowledge with our helpers so i've had a really positive experience with them And in terms, I mean, over the last couple of decades, obviously, you've, you've done very, very, very well. Um, there must have been some massive barriers. What could, if you could tell yourself, you know, 20 years ago, what to look out for, what would that be? Mm, got me on the spot with that one. I would say, uh, no, I, I would say team, from, from a team point of view, um, having someone in a, in a strong position who's a bottleneck who really kind of hoards kind of a position and doesn't allow fluency is really scary. I, I've had a, a CTO at certain points in times who don't allow anyone in because they want to keep their job and control everything. I think that can be really dangerous. So just having uh, a really open team who aren't trying to kind of own, managers better than owning. Um, I always say like, you know, we're the manager, not the owner. And it's a good way to feel because um, th that can be super dangerous. So I'd be that would be something to look out for. Other things to look out for, um, I would say really, is um, for me, it's all around the value prop. I think that if you build something and you haven't put the correct level of value prop for into something, you end up hearing this word called refactoring. It comes up a lot and I, I don't like to hear that word, which means, oh, had we thought about that earlier on, we wouldn't have yeah, to rebuild yeah. everything from scratch <laughs> again. And I guess that's the worst thing to hear. Um, and I think I've learned a lot now to to actually probably spend more time earlier on um, and going through mental pinball of the concept you have um, upfront for a longer period of time to avoid having to refactor, which is so expensive. Um, and I guess any kind of tech business is a tech arms race. So everyone, everything's a time. You know, you've got your moment, you've got your window. And if you have to refactor and go back, you've lost it. In terms of how you manage your day, it's really interesting to understand how people do that because are you a list make maker? Do you write down to-do lists so that you can actually focus? Or going back to the pinball thing, do you just do multiple things at once and, and sort of work it out as you go? I, I don't do lists really very often. Um, no, 
I don't. I kind of just, when something is important, I set meetings up with those people. So I'm, I'm more calendar based rather than list based. So um, that's what I'd probably do. Um, I haven't thought about that. How do you keep up with good ideas? If you come up with an idea, you're out this morning wakeboarding, for instance, with your kids, and you suddenly come up with the next big thing, what would you do? Would you run home, put a meeting in and crack on? Would you write it down? Would you procrastinate a little bit? How do you consolidate what needs to happen next week if it's not important enough to have a meeting? I probably go through it in my head for a while um, until it gets to a point where I write an exec summary down. And then I start road testing that. Um, and it needs to get to a point where I'd want to actually turn, turn that into a business plan, which I love to write myself. So um, it just needs to get through that barrier of exec summary in my head. It really makes sense. Now I want to do a business plan. And I think my first port of call would be work with someone on product at that point. I, I wouldn't, it was, you know, that, that would be like, okay, let's productize this. And what does a business plan look like to you? Because they're so different to, to so many people. Some are just bullet points, some are Excel spreadsheets. How do you sort of um sort of compartmentalize everything into a bit business plan I, I think i've got a format i had which is like a standard business plan to say flow to company so it's quite a heavy document maybe 50 60 pages and it goes through marketing and i, and I tend to try and fit any idea into that right. um and i do i always do a, um a financial plan because it's like okay here's a great idea but does it financially work and that like really guides you into where i think without doing the financial planning even as an idea it doesn't guide you to the way that this could actually really grow. So is it retention business, which needs recurring income? Does it need a bit of both? Does, where does that, so without actually putting it on paper and seeing the potentials with conversion rates down, you don't really know what it's going to be. So then if you build it without knowing that, you might go wrong. So it's like, oh, I need to know where the, the opportunity is first. So I, I feel like I really need a good financial plan to see. I like seeing the numbers um, to get excited, actually. And so speaking of numbers, I mean, you've done very, very well. Numbers, obviously, are, are simply, you know, a scorecard, as, as, as Theo Pavitas says. Um, what, what do you class as success and what drives you? I, I really feel like I don't feel like I'm totally there yet at all. So I feel like I've had quite a few great wins and some knockbacks along the way as well, which always pin you back. Um, and it's a constant feeling, I guess. So success for me would be always on that upward trajectory of building something new. And success for me is really building and feeling like you're part of something which is growing and you're always on that i think lack of success isn't monetary um lack of success would be like not being able to wake up with a great new idea that would be a real problem for me so i mean looking you said you had some big mistakes etc what what are some of those mistakes because on paper on linkedin and the press you know you have had a pretty decent ride of this yeah i was looking i i've had eight eight exits and one only one which i invested in which is only a small amount of money which didn't work uh -huh. okay which is really interesting so why didn't that work i invested in a team which were very technical and i didn't get close enough to the value proposition I, it was it was more like the technical they were very technical um and the, the team didn't quite make the business side of it work so they were very good at building tech and not really great at selling right okay so, uh, you know, it, it just didn't actually work. So the, the best point at that point was to close that business rather than to carry on. It was an early stage startup, but I, it wasn't a big investment for me. But that was the only one which hasn't hasn't worked, actually. And we can't have a conversation with someone as tech entrepreneurial as, as yourself who's investing in blockchain, as you alluded to earlier on, without having a conversation around cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Now, what are your thoughts on on that as a world and as a transactional type of currency and as a tech? I'm I'm unfortunately quite bearish. Okay, and, Interesting. and I, I think I'm a, a, I'm extreme 
in, in on my view here. I don't know if it's very popular, my view. Go on. But when it comes to kind of cryptocurrencies, I just feel like I hear a lot of people saying, well, I've traded this crypto, I've traded that, and um, they've got their money uh, through this platform. And I'm like, have you paid your tax on that? <laughs> uh, and there is no um, ledger to force that. And um, I'm feeling that at some point, I'm seeing like Joe Biden in the US like bringing special forces to say, you know, and, and the, the big worry for me, I guess, is that um, people being able to take out, you know, ATM machines for Bitcoin is a way to trade, make a ton of money, take it out on a cash point, and no one would ever know you made that money. And I think at that point, once it gets that commercial, I think that regulation will kick in very hard. And I, I, I feel that it becomes unsustainable. So unless that's fixed, um, and I don't think it is being fixed now, I think that a lot of people are just trading and and i i feel it could be stopped but jamie looking at looking at the regulatory side of it putting that to one side right because that, that's your biggest gripe at the moment actually from a tech point of view right because it is fundamentally blockchain is, is essentially what what most crypto if not all cryptocurrencies are so you said that you've invested in a blockchain business so why would you not side with cryptocurrencies at the moment i i feel blockchain is all around trust right so blockchain, blockchain is fantastic when it needs, when there's an industry that needs trust, that this is guaranteed to have happened at that time and it's, it can't be tampered with. And I think that's genius when it comes to security, documentation, um, if you were selling multiple. I love the idea of like fractional ownership and being able to know that you own something and it was independent. So I do think the, the, um, the applications of trust in tech are huge. So I feel the blockchain can add a lot when that is needed, you know, could you not get trust from doing it on a database, which is done held centrally? Maybe is there's lots of other other ways to do it, but I do feel that there's a huge opportunity uh, with applications off the blockchain. Hundred percent. I just feel with the cryptocurrencies right now, there's not much trust in the money and where it's going and how it's held and the treasuries. And I just feel that there's many experiences happening that would, for me, not want to invest in it. It just feels very speculative um, and um, feels like something could it could move very easily from any kind of regulatory change and it scares me so that's kind of why i don't want to invest in that personally and i don't feel bullish to want to put money into it i don't think it, I, i'm sure it, it works really well for me but i just at this point feel there's quite a bit of risk there no 100 percent. and and honestly there could be another podcast on speaking entirely around cryptocurrencies blockchains and that, and that kind of world because i find it truly fascinating but going back to to uptime if i want to download the app i want to find out a bit more about you guys how can i do that Okay, so definitely Apple App Store or Google Play. Um, it's up there. <laughs> um, and, and that would be wonderful for people to download it. And it's a, a free trial. So um, it's great to get a thank you for allowing me to plug Uptime. No um, I will shamelessly do so. <laughs> no, by all means, thanks for your time. Yeah, that's the, that's the best place to, to, to get it from the App Stores. Um, um, and that's where it's available. Very good. Well, Uptime on the App Store, fantastic. And it is now about time to... Uh, that's quite Alan Partridge, that, wasn't it? We, we, yeah, that was very Alan Partridge. But no, Jamie, in all seriousness, thank you very much for dialing in from uh, from from Spain, I think is where you are at the moment. Go and enjoy the wakeboarding with your kids. But um, no, genuinely best of luck with Uptime and appreciate appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ollie. It's been a real pleasure and I, I really enjoyed our, our chat today. Cheers, dude. Thanks for listening to this episode. For more information, check out the description where you can find exclusive video snippets on my YouTube channel, as well as contact details and links. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support as always by subscribing. If you or someone you know should be on the show, please email me via oliver at pinpoint-media.co.uk and I promise I'll get back to you. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Take care.
Successes in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection, and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. This podcast is supported by our media partner, Blocks and PR, who represent some of the most powerful brands within the luxury, lifestyle, and fashion sector. Go and check them out at blocksandpr.com.